My guest on this episode is two-time cancer survivor and author, Christine Corrigan. She was first diagnosed with cancer as a teenager. 35 years later, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Christine talks about being a two-time survivor, how she shared her diagnosis with her kids, and her treatments. Take a listen in as Christine shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. Thank you so much, Christine, for being with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about your story. Um, you know, you are a two-time cancer survivor. So, you know, if you'd like, we can talk a little bit about the first diagnosis and then talk about the second diagnosis as well. So uh, wherever you're comfortable with starting, I'm going to let you kind of take it from here. Sure. Thanks. Um so yes, I am a two-time cancer survivor. When I was 14, almost 15 years old, going into the, my sophomore year in high school, um, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, as it was called then. Um, and when I was young, I remember you know, having this conversation with my oncologist at the time, and he told me, you know, kiddo, you have something called Hodgkin's disease and it's a blood disease and you're going to have to go have what's called radiation therapy and you're going to have a tough couple of months, but you're going to be okay at the end of it. And, you know, I was like, okay, I, you know, okay. So I, so, so I they're had, not using oh, the word cancer. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. And um, so I had the treatment at the time was, Typically, you'd have a splenectomy followed by some course of radiation therapy. So that's that was what the protocol that was followed. Um, so my I lived in Staten Island. That's where I grew up, one of the boroughs of New York City. And the only place to go to get treatment was at Memorial Hospital in New York City, which is now Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Oh, yeah. But all my medical records from the time that I was able to obtain all say Memorial Hospital on it. So I don't even think that when I went to the city to go have treatment, I even saw the word cancer anywhere. Yeah. And I had like this sort of cognitive dissonance. I can call that now as an adult. I mean, I certainly didn't know that as a teenager. Whenever my mom or dad would take me because I'd be walking through the hospital you know, seeing all these really, really sick people, you know, people on IVs and kids with no hair. And, you know, as we meandered our way to the radiation outpatient, you know, radiation department. And um, I, I couldn't understand why I had to go to this place where so many people were so sick when all I had was Hodgkin's disease. And I don't think it was until I was older. I mean, I know it wasn't until I was older, until so, several years later, probably when I was like in college when like I connected the dots and realized that, um, yeah, I, I, I had had cancer and wow. yeah. Um, what and year was that? I'm sorry. What the, year was, what year were you diagnosed? 1981. Okay. Um, so still a very, you know, it was a time where saying the word cancer was very taboo and I'm sure I'd, saying it to a teenager was like, no, no. Absolutely. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I'm sure that that was the case. And I'm sure my parents, you know, were trying to, you know, protect me from something that was so much scarier sure. than, you know, a blood disease, like a blood disease I could handle. Yeah. But I think, you know, at 14, if they said you had cancer, I probably would have freaked. You know? um, so you know, I went through it and my family being kind of the family that they were was when it was over, it was over. And we didn't talk about it. Everybody kind of like packed the box up, put it away, 
you know, and we moved on. And so fast forward 35 years, I'm going for my annual mammograms and, um, you know, I was waiting in the exam room. I had a mammogram and an ultrasound and I was waiting for, you know, the nurse or the tech to come in with, you know, my reminder card for the following year to fill out. And I would be on my merry way and the door opened and there's a person in the white coat. Yeah. You don't <laughs> want to see those people. I mean, that's you know. just, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like that's usually so, the telltale sign that something's not quite right. Doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's cancer. So I don't want to scare anybody, but just that there's something suspicious, right. something suspicious. So, um, so the radiologist walks in and she, you know, announces that I have a junky cyst. And I was like, wow, Very I've technical. never heard that, that <laughs> term of art before. <laughs> and so she, you know, she showed me the ultrasound and explained what she meant. And she's like, look, it has to be biopsied. So of course I immediately ask, well, do you think it could be breast cancer? What made you ask that? Well, because that's, you know, I've been, you know, I guess every year that I went for a mammogram. Okay. And I started them, I started them early. Like, well, that I, was going to be my question. I started them in my 30s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was the last piece of advice, actually, my medical oncologist gave me at my last appointment when I was like a senior in college. So 1988, you know, he told me to get out of his office, go live my life, marry a nice Italian boy, <laughs> and, and, and to remember to start my mammograms early. And, I, you know, at the time I was 21 and I had no idea why I was telling me this. And yeah, I wasn't smart enough to ask. You know? Well, and I'm, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, like, it's really hard for me to say what I would do in that situation. But yeah, I mean, I think it would be kind of like, well, well, okay. why? Like, what? Huh? You know, and at 21, yeah. I'm sure I would have done the same thing. Like, oh, yeah, okay. You know. I'll deal with it in 10 years. Exactly. You know? So, um, so, you know, by the time I was getting my mammos, I, I certainly was aware of the fact that, you know, I had a prior history of cancer and there was a heightened risk, you know, of sec- secondary cancers if you have radiation therapy particularly at the time I had it, which was a lot more, um, let me say, I'm sure it was less sophisticated and less targeted than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and, and that's not to say any, anything negative. I mean, it was certainly state of the art and the protocol at the time, but I mean, you know, medicine advances as we all know. Right. So, you know, so what I blurted out, do you think it could be breast cancer? I mean, that was the thing I'd been worried about, you know, for the however many years I've been having my mammograms by that point, probably almost 15 years. And she said, she did the thing that doctors like to do. She said, um, I don't want you to worry, which to me translates internally, worry very much. Yes. <laughs> That's Q. <laughs> Q1, worry. Q1. <laughs> And then she's, and then she said, ninety five percent of the time, these you know turn out to be benign. And again, internally, what happens to me is, okay, you just jinxed me. I'm completely totally. <laughs> but you know, but that's just me. That's my my crazy, you know, um, sort of fatalistic worldview. <laughs> you know, like. Um, I I think I share that. I mean, I think I, you know, I always feel like, you know, when my doctors have always been like, well, you know, it's like eight to 10% of the population that has this. And then I'm like, oh, so that's me. (laughs) Yeah. So I get it. I totally understand. Um, So I have a quick question for you. So did they ever tell you, so, so you had said, you know, it kind of clicked for you when you were in college and that's when you realized like, you know, I had cancer. Um, did they tell you like that there was a possibility of a secondary cancer? And did they tell you that like, especially as a woman having had radiation that you were more likely to have breast cancer? Like, was that a conversation ever or was it just simply don't forget to do your mammograms? Um, well, certainly with my medical oncologist, when I was, you know, 21, it was make sure you have your mammograms. Okay. I never had a conversation, certainly with him, about, and here's why, 
But definitely by the time I was, you know, an older, you know, I would say I was in my 30s and going for my, you know, I had had, you know, my first child, you know, I had been, I gave my medical history to my OBGYN and she's like, yeah, it's really important that you start them early because, and I was like, oh, okay. So I'm sure, you know, that, you know, she, somebody explained it to me at some point, right? but okay. it wasn't, you know, when I was a kid, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, the reality of it is, is that I have met a number of people, um, well, women mostly who have had Hodgkin's lymphoma as children and then end up with secondary breast cancer. Um, so it, it just, you know, I was kind of curious just because I'm hearing the conversations more and more as I'm doing the podcast and learning that, Oh, like this is a, this is a possibility for a number of people. Um, so I was just kind of curious what that conversation was. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, it wasn't a conversation that I had as a, as a teenager. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, the other kind of reality of, you know, cancer today is, when I was when I was a teen, you know, the long term survival rates for teenagers with stage two A, you know, Hodgkins, they were, you know, they weren't terrific to be honest. And you know, we've we've all kind of aged, um, you know, many of us, and, and I know I know other you know long term survivors as well who have had either secondary cancers or other secondary significant medical issues related to their treatment. So, um, and, and, you know, when, and so when I was diagnosed, actually, you know, I, you know, my, and all my friends said, well, some of my closer friends, one of whom is a PA said to me, and whatever you do, don't go on the, the internet. You know? like, <laughs> You're like, don't, don't, do you mean go on the internet? So go on the internet. <laughs> but All it, these subliminal I, you know, mes- messages they're giving you. <laughs> right. So I, I went to the National Cancer Institute's website. Um, okay. So at least you went and lo- to and a looked it, and looked it up. Legit. You know, and looked up like risk factors for breast cancer. And, and it's right in there. It's like mm-hmm. prior radiation therapy increases your risk factor for secondary breast cancer t- anywhere from 20 to 30% which is pretty damn significant since yes. about one in eight women are going to be diagnosed anyway. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of connected the dots, you know, more as an adult or right. connected the, the dots as an adult, not more as. So when you, when you got that second diagnosis of cancer, um, you know, what, what were your thoughts? Like, um, you know, did they, did they bring you in for an appointment? Did they call you at home? Like, how did you hear that information? And if you, you know, for a lot of people, you know, that day very much stands out and, um, you know, a lot of people can recall how they were feeling and, you know, what was going on. So I'm just kind of curious, like, just to hear from your perspective, especially coming as a second, um, cancer now think that's a that's a great question and I think that's absolutely true and I know exactly where I was I was in my kitchen it was around seven o'clock at night it was March 2nd 2016 the day before my older son's 15th birthday and it was a night that was perfectly ordinary I was cooking dinner my younger son who was in fifth grade at the time was sitting at the kitchen counter doing his homework you know, I was about to set the table and the phone rang and I picked, you know, I picked, I picked up the phone in the kitchen and I looked at the caller ID and it was my breast surgeon number. And, you know, I was like, you know, so I begin all the, you know, silent praying and I walked out of the kitchen into the dining room to take the call. And, you know, it was, you know, He said, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, you've got breast cancer. And I, you know, I got real, (laughs) my first 
silent, you know, instinct was, oh, come on, (laughs) not again. Like, seriously, like, really? You know, and I I had sort of an internal, like, I don't want to call it maybe, you know, just a sheer and utter disbelief. I was like, come on, I don't smoke. I try to eat healthy. I work out every day. (laughs) I'm trying to do all the things. And now, like, we have to have, you know, this rain down on us. And I knew, I knew in that moment, like, the life I had was was over. Like, that was going to be my before. Like, I would never have that again. And I didn't know what the after was going to look like. So for me, it was a very cleaving moment. You know, it's like, you know, that your, your personal timeline gets broken yes. in a way. So because you said that, I'm, I'm kind of curious, um, and I've not asked this question of, of um, the other people that I've had um, or know, did you feel that same way when you were a teenager? <sighs> no, I think as a teenager, okay. I was, the thing I was really focused on, worried about was whether I was going to be able to go to school. Right. You know, I was, you know, it was like, well, cause I was diagnosed like two weeks before my sophomore year started. And that's what I really wanted. Like, how am I going to go to school? How am I going to do my work? How am I going to see my friends? You know, how am I going to participate in all the activities I was involved in? You know, all the things that teenagers worry about. You know? Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I always kind of, um, it's just one of those things like, you know, how do you view your life, you know, when that happens before, especially being so young, you know, I don't know what that shift is. I know what that shift was when it happened when I was 30, you know, but I had established a life, you know, it was, it was very different. So, um, you know, I was just kind of curious, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that you had said was it was an ordinary day, mm-hmm. you know, it was an ordinary day. I was, you know, I was getting, things ready for dinner and this birthday party for my son and you know like nothing it was just ordinary. just life yeah it's just life just it's life. like the, the beautiful moments of your everyday life you know yeah. and then that it, we just that it then it you know then it blows up then it blows up you know right. and I I hung up the phone and I walked down the hallway and my husband was working in his office and you know, he looked up and I walked in and, you know, I told him and he had lost his father three years earlier to metastatic prostate cancer and has never been, yeah, I love my husband generally, but he's like, he's an accountant. So like anything medical to him is like, just not anything he wants to be involved in. yeah <laughs> and and I grew up in a family that was all healthcare. my mom was a nurse my dad was a hospital administrator so like it was all healthcare all the time and you know I knew you know just like our our just our lives were gonna were gonna change and he knew it too because he saw what happened with his father right and um how did you share that information with your kids? <laughs> the $20 million question. Yeah. All right. So um, I, there's a whole chapter in my book. Uh, it's called uh, How Not to Tell Your Children You Have Cancer. <laughs> <laughs> is this from personal experience? Let me ask so that. This is from, yes, this is from personal experience. Um, so my plan had been, now my, I, I should say this, I'll, I'll back up and say, my oldest daughter, who was then a freshman in college, or my only daughter, who was my oldest child, um, knew I had had a biopsy because right, I had told her. And I told her I would, you know, we'd let her know when we had, you know, information to share. So the first thing my husband and I said to each other is, how are we going to tell the kids? And, you know, the two of us being sort of analytical, we're just like, well, why don't we wait until we have all the information? So we know what the diagnosis is, what the prognosis is, what the treatment plan is, so that we, and then we'll sit everybody down at the same time and tell them, you know, and for various and sundry reasons that would take me hours to explain. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a good plan. 
I'm like it on sounded, board. It sounded like a good pe- plan. And, and honestly, you know, I talked to some of my girlfriends who had gone through cancer and, um, and they kind of had done the same thing with their family, but just what ended up happening was I, um, I, my daughter came home for the weekend and I was away with my, my son, my older son in Pennsylvania at a swim meet. And I had, you know, preliminary pathology that said I was HER2 negative and would, and ERPR positive. And I would have surgery. And I was all excited that that was, that was the result because that was the result I wanted. I didn't want to have to go through chemo. So my daughter comes home from college for the weekend, corners my husband <laughs> and says, what's going on with mom? And he tells her, he's like, mom has breast cancer. And she got really upset with me because mm. I told her I would tell her. And I didn't because I had this idea in my head that I was going to control the narrative and tell everybody all at once. And, um, and it turned out, you know, <laughs> more, more irony than I could possibly have planned myself. I got a phone call while I was at the swim meet from my surgeon who said he didn't like the preliminary pathology results and he ran a more precise test hmm. that came back. Yeah, it came, it sort of the her, the her marker came back as indeterminate on the first okay. test, basically. It was like you could be a one, a two, or a three. Like one, you're, you don't have that three, you do. I was a two. So okay. doctor, doctors don't like twos, right? Or my doctor didn't like a two. <laughs> so, and, you know, he called me that morning, called me, you know, Saturday morning, I'm sitting in, you know, a hotel in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, drinking really bad coffee. And he, <laughs> he tells me that, you know, my herb two marker was positive and I would need chemo. And I was just devastated. Um, and then my husband called to tell me that my daughter, he had told my daughter the night before. So the whole thing kind of just blew up in, in my face. It wasn't what I wanted, you know, and I, I right. certainly not what, um, you know, given my history, you know, I, I had, I had always promised myself that I'd be honest with my kids that I would, you know, if anything like that, um, you know, just we share the bad news and we talk it through and we deal with it as a family and we weren't going to have secrets because my family, my family were incredible secret keepers. <laughs> my husband's family, not so much. They're, they are the non-secret keepers. Like if you want to, <laughs> you want to know what's going on with somebody, you just have to call one particular brother and he'll nice. tell you. you, just, you know? <laughs> Don't tell that brother secrets. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, like a, I, there's a joke. There's like, there's no vault. There's nothing goes into the vault. That my, <laughs> That's my funny. Husband. So, um, yeah. So, but, you know, eventually we, you know, we sat down with our two boys, you know, cause I had had the whole conversation with my daughter already. She went back to college and, um, and, you know, we sat down with the boys after that swim meet and told them and my older son's first question was, are you going to lose your hair? And my younger son's first question was, are you going to die? Oh my gosh. So, um, you know, it's funny, you know, it's the difference between having a teenager and a 10 year old. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and I would say, you know, we, we worked through it. We told them what we knew, what was going to happen you know, the chemo, you know, the treatment plan, you know, that I was going to be, you know, not well, I wasn't going to be myself. And, but we'd get through it. We'd get through it. Well, I think, you know, know, I, I think your intentions were good. Um, You know, it's, it's one of those things where like, I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I don't have kids, um, but you know, the, the timing of telling my parents, like when you were talking about secrets and all of that stuff, I very much held secrets from my parents. Like I didn't even tell my parents that I found a lump. Like I didn't tell my parents that I had to go in for a mammogram and an ultrasound. It was only until the biopsy when I Mm -hmm. actually had to have somebody that had to 
like they needed somebody to drive me. That was the only point where I was sharing that information because I had just lost an uncle about six months before. So it was one of those things where like, you know, it's, you think it all sounds good in your head. Right. And then, you know, the timing, you know, and then, it, and then, you know, people are like, well, why didn't you tell me like what, <laughs> you know, so I, I, um, I can appreciate the, you know, efforts in trying to control that narrative because I would have done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we all, we all come at, I, I don't say we all, but I, I think my speaking for myself and I think most other patients and survivors I've, I've spoken to, you know, you do come at this particularly with children or, and, and with your parents too, you come at it, come at it with, you know, from a place of love, you know, you're trying to, you know, protect these people you care about from this news that's going to just rain crap down. Right. Heads, well, you know? yeah. And the hard part is, is that, you know, when we think about, you know, we've, we've all had this picture painted for us of what cancer looks like. And so when we just hear the words cancer and there is no other information that goes along with it, you know, it's that immediate thought of going to lose her hair, may die. Like those are, those are things that, you know, that's what we know. You right. Know, like that, that's just the way that we've been kind of conditioned, if you will. Um, you know, so, so having some information like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, this or it's that. And so that means that I need to do this or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Cause I certainly, here's the thing is I never, ever want to minimize anybody's cancer experience. It doesn't matter if you, you know, whatever stage you are or whatever, um, you know, ERPR positive, negative, HER2, like it is a traumatic experience for everybody. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I certainly don't want to minimize that for anyone. Um, but having that information, I feel like, you know, would be helpful, right? Rather than just coming at somebody and saying, oh, I have cancer. Um, right. And then that was my big concern, yeah. particularly with my daughter. My daughter was in college in Vermont. She was five hours away from us. You know, I, you know, call her up and what am I going to say? Hey, you know, I have cancer, but I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Right. You know, so then she'd be freaking out, you know, by herself, right. you know, with her friends or whatever, and not knowing, you know, all the answers to those questions, like how bad is it? Is mom going to live or die? Right. Is she going to live to see me graduate? You know, all that stuff. And, you know, so, um, you know, we thought we were doing the, uh, the right thing. And it's funny, I, I've just recently written an article about this, um, but, you know, the American Cancer Society and ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, you know, re- actually suggest that you tell children in pieces, mm-hmm. like particularly teens and older children, to share the information as you have it um, because they're, they're able to process it that better that right. way. And I was like, wow, wish I had read that then. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. It's always, you know, perfect timing <laughs> after the fact, the information becomes available. And then, you know, <laughs> you're like, well, this right. would have been great information back then. Um, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about uh, what did end up happening. I mean, because you, you're, you know, you had kind of had this idea of what your treatment plan was going to be. So what did it turn out to be? So, um, well, it turned, you know, I, I got my diagnosis, I got all pathology, I made an appointment with my oncologist and, you know, and I actually had it in my head because I had these two inconsistent pathology reports that inconsistent in my mind, I was, you know, my lawyer was very much showing and I thought I would walk into my oncologist's office and talk him out of chemotherapy. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I don't mean to laugh. I don't mean to laugh, but you should laugh. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I'm and, sure he you know... was like, mm, no, Mm-mm. no. So I, you know, I, I mean, I had you know Manila files. I had a notebook. I had questions. I was like, all ready to like, you know, like here I handed present your case. On, present my case. <laughs> you know, and and he was so kind and so calm, and he. He actually got up from his desk. He walked around the desk and came and sat down next to me and took the reports and explained them to me like a professor would teach a student, like step by step and line by line. 
And why the answer was, yes, you are having therapy <laughs> at the end of the day. But he did it in such a beautiful, kind way yeah. that I, I was just able to say, okay, well, you know, um, this is what it's going to be then, you know, and, and go forward. And so I went through um, six rounds of um, chemo. So TCHP tax, whatever. That's the protocol for triple positive cancer. Right. And then um, I went through eight more rounds. So the balance of the year of, of Herceptin, um, which is a targeted, you know, anti HER2 uh-huh. therapy. And then after I recovered from the chemo, I had a bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction. Um, yeah. And then, so I finished all of my treatment, um, like exactly a year after it started. So it was a whole year. So, um, sorry, I, so just in terms of, um, you know, so I know that it was stage one, it was grade three, triple positive. Were those the reasons that they recommended a bilateral mastectomy or did you say, I just want to have this done? I said, I just wanted to have it done okay. because the, the tumor was, there was, there was definitely cancer in my right breast, which was the initial tumor site. Um, and we did, we did a breast MRI and an, another ultrasound, you know, in the whole diagnosing process. And the MRI was inconclusive as to the left that, you know, they just, they couldn't tell mm-hmm. if there was any cancer on the left, but, um, and, and, you know, certainly the various doctors were like, you could just do, you know, you could do a single mastectomy. And I, I was like, I can't live, I, I can't have this happen a third time, you know, even though I have actually no control over whether it actually happens yeah. for a third time. But the thought of like putting my family through another breast cancer experience just was not a risk I was willing to live with. Um, I, you know, and I had, you know, I've been living in fear of cancer my whole life, whether it was really conscious, you know, whether I perceived it consciously at the time, I know this to be true today. And I just couldn't live with that anxiety of having to go get scans and mammograms every six months. And, you know, I was, I was kind of like, well, you know, (laughs) I've had my children my breasts have done the thing that they're supposed to do. And uh, I made that decision and, you know, I, I grieved it. I mean, I, I did grieve losing my, both of my breasts. I mean, for, you know, it's part of your identity as a woman or it was certainly part of my identity as a woman. You know, it's was a big part of my own sexual life, mm-hmm. you know, that goes away. Um, but I knew I couldn't live with that anxiety. And and it actually, after the fact turned out when they did the surgical pathology, there was actually um, DCIS okay. in the left press. Yeah. So, and I, know, which may or may not have turned into something. Right. But, well, and I hear that, you know, I hear it a lot where it's, you know, the, the anxiety of it. And, um, you know, that's something I'm, I'm very honest when I don't know something, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know, like, I don't know what that experience is. Um, you know, but I've heard a lot of people that, you know, they just said, you know, it was, it was too much and I didn't want to think about it. And, you know, it's, it, we know that it's not 100%, but if it can, you know, help with, um, decreasing that anxiety and that fear just a little bit, um, to go that route then you absolutely mm-hmm. have to do what's good for you. Um, you know, just the anxiety alone of waiting, like finding the lump, doing all of that process, and then actually getting the diagnosis. Like that was, that was a lot. So I can't imagine right. going through that every six months. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, before I, you know, before I actually ended up making that decision, you know, very kind of early on and right after I found out I was having coffee with a friend who had had breast cancer and she had breast cancer twice actually. And, you know, she said the first time she did the lumpectomy and radiation, 
and she was fine for seven years. And then she went in for her annual mammogram and it was back. And she said, you know, so I had, I had the bilateral mastectomy, but she's like, it was so much harder on the kids the second time around. And, and she said, and it was harder for me to have the reconstruction because her skin had been damaged from the radiation. So, you know, her, her story was like in the back of my head too, when I was making my decisions, I was like, well, you know, this, and, and she's one of the most level headed, you know, people I know. And, um, so, you know, that, that kind of helped, you know? Well, and I think, um, you know, I, I always, try to explain or try to, you know, kind of validate for people, um, you know, who might be listening to this, who are making decisions um, about, you know, bilateral single mastectomy, lumpectomy, whatever, you know, it's all, it always comes down to your personal choice. And, you know, none of our stories are exactly the same. We might have the, you know, the same blanketed diagnosis of breast cancer, but every single story that sits behind that diagnosis is very different. And the decisions that we make are going to be very different based on our own personal experiences. And, um, you know, it's sometimes I think we get stuck in this like idea of like, well, you know, but my family thinks this or my friends think that or they say I should do this or they, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It really has to be, you know, a personal decision and what's good for you and your circumstances. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, you, that's absolutely the case. You know, someone said to me once, um, who's a young survivor like yourself, um, said, we have to live in this life of ours. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we have to live, we have to live in this life of ours. And only the woman or the man, I mean, men get breast cancer right. too, but um only that individual knows how they want to live their life, you know, and for some women, you know, it having, you know, retaining breasts, say if you're a younger woman and you still want to have children and maybe you want to be able to breastfeed someday, who knows, or maybe, you know, there are a hundred different, you know, as many women as there are, there's, there's reasons, but, you know, I've always gone back to that, um, that expression that we have to live, we have to live in the life we have, you know, and we're the only ones who can measure what that is. Yeah. I love that. I mean, and coming from a young, young survivor, I love that even more (laughs) 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 that she would have enough knowledge and, you know, wisdom to, um, you know, be able to realize that. And, you know, quite honestly, I'm just going to say this real quick. I always felt like, you know, I was, I felt like I was 31, but I was in like the body of a teenager because I was struggling with self-image, but I was like, but I'm so wise. Like, I feel like I'm 90 years old and I've lived this great, (laughs) you know, life. And now I have all this wisdom to share with all of you. Maybe I felt more like Yoda, but, um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, um, did they, because it was triple positive, did they recommend um, a hysterectomy and oophorectomy as well? Or is that something that's not? No. Been, okay. No. I, and I did actually ask my breast surgeon that and he said he didn't think it was necessary um, because it was stage one. And, you know, so, and I, I'm, I was perimenopausal at okay. the time anyway. So I've been I'm on tamoxifen. I'm still on tamoxifen. I'll be on tamoxifen or something else you know, for 10 years. So, um, you know, so, so far, yeah, so far, no concerns there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, you know, it's always, it's different circumstances, you know, where, um, some, some women it's recommended. I mean, for me, it was because I have a BRCA2 mutation, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. had it been, you know, if I didn't have that mutation, I don't know that they would have recommended it. I have no idea. Um, but I know every, you know, again, everybody's, circumstances are different. So, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'd also had my oncotype run. I had my gene, you know, genotype run. I didn't have any markers, genetic markers for any cancer, Okay. not ovarian, not uterine, not even breast. So, right. I mean, I didn't have the BRCA mutation. So, you know, my, my surgeon was just like, yeah, we, we don't need to do that. Too. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's give your body. 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I think it probably, um, you know, comes back to there's just that knowledge that, you know, the, the radiation, especially, you know, years ago, um, can lead to secondary cancers. And, you know, just hopefully as time goes on that things get better, you know, med- yeah. medically things advance, um, the re- you know, the risk of developing a secondary cancer is reduced or minimized to zero. That'd be great. Yes. That would be awesome. That <laughs> yeah. Would be awesome. Yeah. So, uh, well, it has been great talking to you. I um, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, you know, I know that your book, uh, again, is available on Amazon um, starting October 24th. So anybody that's interested in um, hearing or reading your full story um, can find your book there. So, Christine, thank you so much for being with me today. I really have enjoyed our time together. Thank you, Melissa. It's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.
Absolutely.